Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. A little golf clap you hear, but that resounding support for the individual that's really, really espousing the mission and the vision of the organization and with the examples that go along with it. it there's, it's, there's no feeling like it. And the degree to which you can take and imbue the organization with it and get a bunch of these individuals that are charging toward that common goal, man, some great stuff happens. So the, the key here is, uh, you know, Justin, I think that the, the one thing I want to make sure that we put a, 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 a stamp on is the fact that each one of these elements can be measured. And so as we think about, you know, building this culture. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Art Johnson. Art, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for the time. So I want to hear about the new book, but but maybe to begin with, let's why don't you tell people just a little bit about your career background and what you're what you're doing today? Sure. So the book is The Art of Alignment, and my career path has kind of taken me to this point of writing the book. And it began early on selling copiers door to door. And you learn pretty fast how to sell because as you knock on nine out of 10, I should say 99 out of 100 doors, 99 of them are not interested uh, in, in buying a copier. So I cut my teeth like that. I was hired as a, I was brought in as a professional hired IBM and then moved up the ranks pretty quickly, was recruited away by US West to run the internet services organization and then was promoted that had not only responsibility for internet services, but also large business sales. And so I had a very large organization, about 2000 employees responsible for a little over a billion dollars worth of revenue. And then Quest Communications bought US West. I began a consulting firm now known as Infinity Systems, to which I, I still continue to run. But in between there, I ran the sales organization for the cardiac rhythm disease management part of Medtronic, which is your old pacemakers, defibrillators, so on and so forth. So served as VP of sales there. And then, and then, like I said, for most recently running Infinity Systems, specifically Orgometrics, which is the tool that we've deployed and ultimately the book that I wrote. And, and so it's funny, when I was looking you up last week, going through some of this stuff, I went to the About Us page. I turned my wife was like, can you tell these guys are brothers? Because <laughs> I've, I've been owning, you know, charities and, and, or, and businesses with my brother for 15 years. And I know that's a disaster for most people. And occasionally it's a disaster for us because we get mad at each other. But in general, it's been like the best thing ever. And, and he's kind of become my best friend in the world. And I've loved it. So I, I, you know, I would say the same thing about my brother a few years older than him. So he'd be offended by the fact that you think we look so much alike, but uh, I'll take it. It's <laughs> great. So, so give us kind of, you know, if your book was a movie, what's like the log line? What's, what's the hook? So the, the main hook here is that there is a way to measure organizational alignment. And what we know is that the more aligned an organization is, the better it performs. So if we have a way by which we can measure it, we can ultimately drive the success of the organization. And our attempt here is to create an ecosystem of aligned leaders. So if you think about people that have the desire to drive higher levels of performance, and I have 
plenty of examples of that, then you want to have it by which you can go about that. You'd like to be able to rub elbows with others that are doing the same thing, lean on them for best practices and create opportunities by which we can get to the end goal of success faster. So that's that's the intention. The book specifically lays out the nine pillars that ultimately lead toward uh, organizational alignment. But at the end of the day, Jess, it's many organizations are working very hard, feverishly, paddling as fast as they can. All we're suggesting is, is that let's see if we can drop those oars in the water at the same time and become aligned and ultimately perform at a higher level. You know, there's, this is, this is kind of a hot topic. You and I were talking about this before we started rolling. You know, this is something that's in the air out there. People are talking about, but not everybody who's writing about it has actually lived it. Can you talk about maybe some of those experiences that you've had that, that led you to this point? So I can, I can tell you that, you know, as a kid, I, going back to grade school, integrated my grade school, first person of color, African-American uh, in, and only at my grade school in a- And where, where was that? This is uh, just outside of St. Paul. So we moved from the inner city of St. Paul to uh, a suburb. And like I said, I integrated this grade school. And so I can remember there was only one other person of color that came in there. He was a cook. And so every day I'd give him a high five as I went past him. And, you know, it was that sort of moment where it, it, it sort of made my day, but, but it was tough. And, and you quickly figured out who was with you and who was against you. And I, I take that into the corporate space as well. As leaders, we want to quickly ascertain who's on board with the mission, vision, values of the organization and, and who's not. And we want to be able to help them along in terms of, of, of buying in, which requires leaders to be effective at selling the vision. And I talk about that, you know, in, in, in chapter one, a little bit about leadership, uh, chapter six, a little bit about leadership in this, in the art of alignment. But I think the, the, the main thrust here, and as we think about what it is we're trying to do, is getting everybody on that same page is a difficult thing to accomplish. And I learned early on that the more responsibility I had, the harder that was going to be. In other words, the broader the expectations of the job, the more employees that reported up into me became, it became a, a very difficult task and you have to have processes by which to do that. And that was really the impetus to, to writing the book and coming up with the very specific things that ultimately lead toward greater levels of alignment. Yeah. So I, um, I guess, I guess just, just one, if I could just add one more thing. Yeah. Yeah. So specifically at Medtronic, we had a very mission driven company and so much so that there was this medallion ceremony for every new employee that came in, which, you know, for some might look at it as brainwashing, but for others, it, it's that opportunity to interface with the high, highest level, most tenured individual that's been a part of the organization that can take and, and really espouse the mission and vision, share it more broadly, and hopefully imbue it in the employees coming on board. And so in the process of this, you know, you're kind of nodding your head as you're going through it, but then you realize, no, this is really serious. You know, we're, we're really about alleviating pain, restoring health, and ultimately extending life. You can see it's still with me, right? So this idea of that became something that I, I not only espoused, but I wanted to make sure that my organization broadly accepted. And the challenge was the further we got away from headquarters, the more disconnected we became. And so that became the work of, of really sowing alignment in the organization and coming with the, with the nine pillars. So, and what, what's the most amount of employees that you've had reporting up to you? About 2,000. Yeah. When you think about organizations of that scale and how often, you know, like business buzzwords, right, can be just something that's a poster on the wall versus something that's like in the bones that people really live. You know, it sounds like there's an example of how Medtronic lived it. What's, what's another example of making it more than a poster on the wall? Well, you know, the, the establishment of a common goal is, is, is paramount to, to this. So we think about examples like the National Football League. At the beginning of every season, everybody has a goal. And, and some, the, the goal, if not all, is to, is to make it to the Super Bowl and ultimately win it. And so by having that common goal, everything that they do day in and day out is about how do we get better every single week and ultimately get to a point where we're at peak performance at the right time in the organization, clearly aligned with our, our common goal and holding one, holding one another accountable to that goal. And so th the example in the NFL of teams that espouse this, but the ones that are fully committed are the ones that oftentimes are, are have the greatest opportunity and chance to, to achieve that goal. Yeah. You know, I think our consulting firm, we, the Utah Transit Authority out here has been one of our clients quite, quite a bit over the years. And, you know, kind of similar size, 2,500 employees, right? And 
they, this is something that they struggled with of like, how do you get a, how do you get the guy who's doing the brakes on the bus or the train to like, feel like we've got this common mission. He, he goes to the brake shop every day and does brakes. Right. <laughs> and they like, they made this video that's like a tearjerker video about this disabled guy in Logan, Utah or something like this, who, because of the services that they had enhanced and made available for, for, you know, somebody in a wheelchair to be able to access public transportation, this guy has a job and just resource wise and family wise, otherwise, like this is not happening. He was not going to have a social outlet and that stuff. Right. And this guy, like everybody on the route knows him. He knows all the bus drivers by name. He's like, he brightens everybody's day when he gets on that bus, whatever. And he's like, he's so heartfelt in his thankfulness that, that the Utah transit authority makes it possible for him to have this fulfilling life that is just otherwise not going to happen, you know? And then they bring it to the bus drivers and like, everybody's like, yeah, brakes matter, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. Right. So I love hearing like the practical examples, like that medallion thing from Medtronic. What's, what's another one of these nine pillars in the book? So uh, just real quick, it's just a dovetail on the yeah, comment yeah. that you made. So the idea of uh, alleviating pain, restoring health and extending life is something that, again, mission of the organization has everybody bought into it. We also have to be cognizant of the objectives that have been established so that we can continue to grow and have the resources necessary to be effective as an organization. So we not only have to have this customer focus, but we also have to have this internal focus. And I think we oftentimes at Medtronic ended up falling into the category of, hey, look, we are just out here to serve the customer. And yes, that's true. And we're also here to make sure that we espouse the, the goals and, 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 and the things that we're trying to accomplish as a broader organization. So part of the exercise is, is being able to do both. So the example that I, I oftentimes use is, you know, we go out and, and we go to the uh, Christmas party every year, and that's, that's what it's referred to as the, the Christmas party. But I think now it's been changed and referred to as the holiday party where grandpa is brought in and, and tells his, his story about how the fact that he has a pacemaker and he's able to play with his grandchildren. And by the time he's done, there's not a dry eye in the room. Everybody's fully on board. They're charged to go out and do their job. But now when we have to go out and do that job, we tend to get caught up in these stories and and not necessarily taking into account that there are better therapies out there for patients and 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 literally moving toward newer technology. We're just, you know, typically focused on what we've always done, but now it's time to move on to the newer technology and we've lost sight of of, of the specifics that are needed to to be able to perform at the highest level. Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. I thought you were going to go with the like, sometimes organizations, we abuse our coworkers in the name of, name of serving our clients, or we abuse our clients in the name of serving our shareholders or these kind of things. But along with what you're saying, it is interesting how that need to be objective is really there. You know, we're, we're, our charity child rescue is helping another charity called America's Kids Belong. And one of the things they're working on is the fact that like orphanages and foster care systems, it, it's so rewarding for somebody to go on a trip and go volunteer in an orphanage and stuff. But we don't always look at like the attachment problems that you leave behind when, when you just come and leave and how this like this feeds the fact that that kid is probably going to stay in an institution because it's financially sustainable if mission groups want to keep coming down here and paying for this, right? right? Versus the just drastically better outcomes of getting these kids placed in forever homes and getting foster care kids adopted, you know, like 10% of foster care kids basically don't have a parent to go home to in this country, right? Right. right. So improving foster care is, is a noble thing. There's so many holes that, that unfortunately that system produces a lot of kids that end up in child trafficking in this country, right? And helping foster is great. It really is. You know what's even better? Getting them a forever family. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so as you were saying, that's exactly a story that was popping to mind for me. Yeah. No, no, there, there's countless examples. I we had we had reps that were working at the elbow of physicians, and the physician was familiar with one particular product, but yet there was a new therapy out that may have been even a little bit more profitable to the company, but more importantly, it didn't deliver inappropriate shocks or it delivered few of it, fewer of them. So this was in the best interest, not only of the company, of the patient and ultimately of the doctor as well. And so we many times lost sight of that and just kept doing what we were always familiar with. And, and that, that's where we had to really make sure that we strengthened the signal out to those areas that were far away from headquarters and they were not necessarily getting the message as frequently or as, as strenuously. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, tell us another principle from the book. 
Okay. You know, this idea of empowerment. So, you know, we all talk about, we want to create this culture of accountability. You know, you hear this all the time. We want a culture, we want people to be accountable. But what we found in the data and the work that we do is that if you don't have a culture of empowerment, it is very difficult to have one of accountability unless you're running a paramilitary organization. In other words, I tell you what to do, you go do it. And if you're not, that type of culture is one that will burn people out. You'll see a voluntary turnover numbers typically higher. But if you do espouse this concept of empowerment, some wonderful things begin to happen. One, by pushing decision-making down the organization, we get decisions made more quickly. If we have the right people in the right places, we get better decisions as well because people are closer to it. And then lastly, I would just say that it speaks to the leader as well, which is I don't necessarily need to be the oracle of information. So just as you come to me as a leader of the organization and ask me a question, I have the tendency if I'm a really smart person and I want the, you know, the continue to bolster my existence, I will answer the question. But instead, I might say, you know, just I don't know. What do you think? And by asking that question, I've done a couple of things. One, I've fostered critical thinking. Two, I've also empowered you. And I guess three, I have now not made myself the oracle of information so that you will go out and begin to think about these things and contemplate them yourself. The beauty of this is we get better ideas, we get newer ideas, we get more ideas, and then we have options to choose from versus just the one that I have and now I've shared with you and you go do it. And then the other piece of that is, is when I go to recognize you for accomplishing the goal, who am I really recognizing if I've told you to do it? Yeah. Right. You know, we just had one of my, my friends, he's a Kansas city police officer. He was the head of the high risk search warrant team for years and stuff. He was episode number one. And then I think episode number like 540 or something on the show. Okay. And he talks about that of like with his guys, you know, people come up, you know, say, Sarge, you know, what are we going to do about this? And he's like, you know, cause they've got, they've got these situations. So he would only get called if they had reason to believe that it was, you know, the people they were going to arrest were armed and, and this is going to be a problem. Right. And he's the most interesting guy because they're like arresting, you know, gangbangers, people, in, you know, who recently murdered someone, but he like refers to them as his clients. He's like, he's like exactly what we need for like policing across the country of just like, like this, like deep humanness of like recognizing danger, but like, you know, how, how would I want to be treated if the, if the roles were, were reversed here, right? And his dad is a career criminal and he had all sorts of problems growing up. And so he's this great guy, it tells really funny stories, but he's like, his, his version of what you just said is like, you know, guy will say, hey, we got this problem on this takedown. What do we do? And he'll be like, I don't know. What do you think we ought to do? I think I'll be like, uh, well, I was, I was, I was kind of think we should do this. And he's like, okay, let's try it. And he'll be like, really? And he's like, he's like, what if something goes wrong? He says, oh, probably will. <laughs> and they're like, what? You just said I could do this thing? This sounds probably going to be wrong. And he's like, yeah, but if I don't let you try stuff, you're never going to, you're never going to grow your creativity. I'm thinking like creativity is a priority for SWAT team guys. Okay. And he's like, listen, I don't think anybody's going to die. Oh, <laughs> so oh so if, if I, if I don't let you be a little more creative, you're never going to learn this. Right? right. And it's interesting. They, they, the kind of things they've done of like, you know, they, they had so many dog shootings when they're going into these rough areas. Right. And so on YouTube, I remember him telling me this one day, he's like, he's like, look at this video and look at just the hatred towards us on the comments on YouTube. I mean, just really like pretty inappropriate stuff, just off, off the charts, disgusting, violent stuff that they think should happen to all cops. Right. Yep. And, and I'm thinking like, yeah, you don't deserve that. You're trying to help people, whatever. Cause he's my friend. Right. He's like, no, yeah. no, Jess, no, really read it. And, and, and there's these things about shooting, shooting dogs and you, you're the one who should be shot and stuff like this, whatever. He's like, wow. you know what happened? We, we didn't just brush that off. We asked, what should we do about this? And so he got his team trained on, on dogs. And he's the way he did it is he went to the team and said like, okay, we're all getting arrested tonight. We got two options, get arrested. They shoot my dog, get arrested. They don't shoot my dog. Anybody voting for option number one, <laughs> no hands go up. So they got this guy who trains pit bulls to become service dogs, to come yeah. teach them what dog's a threat, what's not. And they end up shooting 80% less dogs Wow, wow. because of it. And it's just like, Hey, what if the roles were reversed here? You know, anyways, I know I got a little off track there, but no, just that's spot on. I, in fact, that that's actually somebody that I, I'd like to talk to at some point in time, because I, I it, just hearkening back to the book, chapter 12, we talk about best practices. Where do we get our best practices? You know, and, and in law enforcement, our data has, has taught us that 
you know, it's a very, very much male sector of, of, of work. And what we're learning is that women have two skill sets, more, more often than not have the ability to escalate situations and de-escalate more effectively. So what we're learning is that women make very good law enforcement people. So, and, and, and the data substantiates that. So this is very interesting in, in this space. So when we talk about best practices, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for growth. And, and, and so one of the things that we've been talking about is, you know, this concept of the, even the mission. So when we talk about the importance of the mission and adherence to it and alignment to that, does the mission truly espouse what it is that we've set out to go do? So in law enforcement, it's to protect and serve. What we're looking at it and saying is, well, how about if it is to protect and serve all? which doesn't leave anybody out. And that inclusiveness aspect of that is critical, particularly in these times. And so there's an opportunity to, to revisit that. There's an opportunity to revisit the aspects of alignment and who's misaligned and what's driving that. And then we can start to make some informed decisions with the data. No, it's, it's, I mean, it applies in other areas and, you know, somewhat related, but different. It makes me think we, we just had a guy on the show, mentor of mine, he was uh, the Navy version of a colonel. He's a skipper, okay, in the Navy SEALs, got out and was the head of security for J.P. Morgan. But he recruited a woman that, to the Navy SEALs, which was, you know, not a, lot, not a lot of women involved in that organization, right, who later ended up coming and working for me in the private sector. But her dad was Iranian, Persian, and she saw his family back in Iran, and she went to DLI, to Defense Language Institute, for, for Farsi and, and uh, Dari. And he figured out how to attract her to come over to like an absurdly male dominated organization to come help the female engagement teams. You know, when they're over there and they're trying to be respectful of culture and they want women to talk to women. And, you know, what, what an ideal person who has, who has family roots with that language and, and some, you know, at least more cultural overlap and stuff like this. And anyways, just as you were saying that, that's immediately a story that came to mind for me. I am completely with you. Well, listen, tell me, tell me some stories. Tell me who you feel like has set some examples for this in your life. So my father is, is clearly the ultimate role model for me. This is a pull, you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps individual. My father began his career driving the city bus in uh, St. Paul and then went to finishing, moved up the ranks very quickly, became CEO, and then went on to go on to the Federal Reserve Board, to which he became the chairman of the Oh, company. wow. And uh, when, when you say metal finishing, what is that? So that would be the treating of metal. You know, when we first get it, it's very raw. It's not the smoothest. It's not the color we'd like to see it. And the treating of that requires a, a, a number of processes that ultimately achieve the end goal, which is have it look and, and feel the way that you'd like for it to. And his, and, the company. And then what product? Sorry. And the, the, the again, the process is one that, that this takes time and and an alchemist to be effective at it. And so dad was, he, he ended up running that, that particular company and, and then receiving a number of awards in that space. And what's the output? Are they making like, what are they using once it's been? Well, finished? you know, an example is like even nuclear warheads, you know, oh, wow. a, a big contract with, with Honeywell produced these nuclear warheads. And so I saw firsthand dad's ability to to lead. I saw how he went about that. He was a drill sergeant in the army. He served in the Korean war. So he was a war vet and, you know, just, just watching him and, and how he went about it. And he did it through effective questioning. I can remember as a kid cutting the grass and, you know, being proud of my work afterwards and outside he came and, you know, to inspect the work and he looked at it and we both saw a little strip that was missed there. And he looked at me and said, Art, is this your best work? And I looked at it and I looked at him and I said, you know, it, it's not. And then the next question was, well, when do you think we'll see your best work? <laughs> <laughs> so I fired that lawnmower back up and uh, finished that job. But, but it's just the effective questions that uh, a leader asks. And, and what I learned from that, Jess, was that in, in this leadership realm that we talk about, the, the best leaders ask questions. They, they, they ask more questions than they answer. And, and that's what I was talking about before. Rather than being the oracle of information, let's, let's, let's ask effective questions. You know, another example of that, just real quick, you know, there's an airport that was having some issues. It's, it's customers were, travelers were, were getting down to baggage claim and the bags weren't getting there in a timely fashion. They're constant complaints. And so they, 
they spent $2 million building faster conveyor belts. And um, they literally were able to move the luggage 25% faster, significant uh, improvement. But yet the, the travelers would get to the baggage claim and still end up waiting for them. And the complaints continued. And $2 million later, the problem's not solved. And so the, the solution, finally, after asking the right question, which is, well, what would make you happy talking to the travelers? And the simple answer was, well, if my bags were there when I got there. So simply by slowing the conveyor belts that people walk on, slowing those down so they couldn't move so fast, so that by the time they got the baggage claim and were able to claim their bags at the same time that they got there was the solution. And so a simple fix that costs like $5,000 versus $2 million just by simply asking the right question, this is what leaders do. So there's examples of it, countless examples yeah. of it, but uh, I just that one's a kind of a funny one. Well, I, I want to hear more about your dad. Federal Reserve Board, that sounds amazing. What, what How old was he when he was doing that? Well, he was 50s, in his 50s when he was doing yeah. that. Yeah. Do you remember that time when he made that transition or... I, I do. I was in college at the time, and and you know the the FBI follows your family for a number of years before they they make an appointment like that. And thank goodness I was I think on the straight and narrow, <laughs> and and uh, so they they offered the uh, position. He he accepted, and it was you know he did his his term, and then was was in essence promoted within, and he led the. He, uh, he was a chairman, a council of chairman, which is all the districts reported into him. And, and like I said, he reported directly to Greenspan. In fact, on my desk, I have a picture of, of he and Greenspan together. Interesting. Any any lessons you learned watching him in, in such a high profile position like that? You know, again, it's the it's the effective question asking. You know, he he positioned himself on the compensation committee and got to know the executives and and, and certainly realized the value that they were contributing. We wanted to make sure that compensation was consistent and commensurate with contribution. And that's very much, you know, if 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 you're making a larger contribution, then then you should be compensated appropriately. So he positioned himself there and, and got himself connected with a lot of good folks and some of those relationships my brother and I still have to this day. You know, I'm interested in your thoughts on this about kind of the value of having like a strong, a, this is totally tangent, strong male role model for, for young men to grow up with. My, my mom's dad, my grandpa is like my hero. Like if I ever grow up, I hope to turn out like him, you know, <laughs> he just like, Every one of his 65 grandkids thought they were his special grandkid. They were obviously delusional. It was me, you know, but just, you know, self-made millionaire in this little farm town of 3000 people served on the, served in church, served on the community groups. And just like, I remember being like downtown with him. Downtown is like a block. Okay. <laughs> and we'd be walking down the street and he'd be stopping people be like, I don't think I, I don't think I know you. He's this old man. Right. And he's like, I don't think I know you. I'm Jim Bridge. People are like, yeah, I know who you are, right? But just so unpresumptive, so caring about people. Like my mom has friends who, who like feel like he was more of a dad to them than their own dads, you know, like, and like it changed. Like I remember like my skateboard friends, like trying drugs and getting in trouble and stuff. And like part of the reasons behind, besides some religious reasons that I didn't is like, I would never have wanted my grandpa to find out and to be dis and disappoint him and my right. parents, right. you know? Right. So when I told you the story about dad coming out and inspecting the work, that whole disappointment yeah. factor, you knew exactly what I was touching on, didn't you? <laughs> well, so I mowed his lawns. So I mowed that... his lawns and he would be like, he, you know, he was all about like doing it right. And, and right. he was not about me doing it fast. And he would like change things and because he was really interested in, in like doing it right. But it was like teaching me to do it right. Anyway, sorry. Go so, on. No, Jess, you're, you're right on. The, in, in, in the Art of Alignment, we touch on each and every one of these things, which is, are we clear on what it is that we've set out to go do? Do we have a common goal? And, and has that been articulated? Has the expectations and the accountabilities associated with the work, is that clear? And that's why when we, when we went outside to inspect the work and clearly it wasn't where it needed to be, that accountability factor kicked in high gear. And so, you know, you fire up that lawnmower, you fix that problem immediately and you're off and running. But I, I just want to just make one other statement. You yeah. know, we talk about these pillars and one of them is communication. And it sounds like your grandfather really had it, which was the ability to connect with people. There is no substitute for that skill set. And it begins with the ability to ask effective questions and then shut up and listen. And that is difficult for leaders that have always been the smartest person in the room, the one that they want to stick the microphone in front of, 
this isn't the time for that. But this is the time to connect with people, to listen, to hear their stories, because the minute you show them that you care, you begin to build trust and business and organizations move at the speed of trust. And so leaders have to be cognizant of where they are, the degree to which they're trusted, the authenticity that they bring to the job, and ultimately how effective they are at communicating, which begins with listening. You know, that was certainly the case with him. Like, he would listen to you so fully. Like, I remember he, he just, he, he did such a great job of making a big deal of people. Like, I was at his house like multiple times a week. He lived like four doors down from me, right? Like Sunday after church, I would go over for like three or four hours until my parents made me come home for dinner, you know? And like, I swear, like when you were there and he was talking to you, like if the president of the United States had called, he'd have been like, oh, can you tell him I'm calling back? I'm just, Jess is here. Can you just, can you let him know I'll call back? Like that's, that's the feeling you got yeah. from him, yeah. right? Yep, my dad was And like, uh, so magnetic, right? Very much so, very much so. Undivided attention, you know, almost waiting on every word. You know, I think about like getting advice. You know, I'm kind of one of these like, you know, ADD, shiny penny syndrome, go, go, go guys, right? And so it's very, it could be very tempting for me to have, staff, like when I was running the private equity fund in Canada, staff coming in, I, people need my signatures on stuff. Things are happening. They need approvals. And I'm multitasking. I'm checking email and finding out the latest financial reports on this and doing whatever needs to happen. I remember getting advice about like, turn your computer screen off and, and show your staff some respect. And it was like a wake up call of like, yeah, what must it feel like to be, what must it feel like to work for me when I'm only ever giving people part of my attention? And like, Nowadays, I, I like have to like turn my phone over, turn my, my iPhone over, mm -hmm. you know, so that I can't see alerts yep. or like um, that same guy, Chip Huth, the, the SWAT guy. Every time I'm at the grocery store, I hear his word, not every time, but most of the time at the grocery store, I hear his words in my ear saying, take your dang earbuds out and talk to this <laughs> checkout person like a real live human being. And so like, I literally feel guilty being in grocery store checkout lines if I leave my earbuds in because I'm listening to audiobooks basically at all times I'm not talking to a human so it's like painful to take them out and yet I feel like I gotta you know just so. we, we we encourage leaders to do that to to turn the phone off if you have a meeting with an employee it's 30 minutes or whatever you're doing a performance appraisal or whatever literally phone should be off computer screen should be turned off undivided attention should be should be first and foremost and one of the go ahead I just have to add one to that. Apple watches are the worst ever. Yeah, yeah. that's it's, it's like I, I had to start putting my Apple watch on airplane mode every time because no matter how hard I tried to concentrate, it was like Pavlov. I couldn't help but do one of these before I knew what I was doing, you know? That's so Sorry, what were you no, 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 I, I, I completely hear you. And I, the thing that I would just add to it is, as you, as you think about that leadership opportunity and the, we encourage leaders to consider this sort of ideology. When somebody comes and asks you a question, fight the urge to answer it. Just, you have to fight the urge. And so I can remember myself, I, my first, uh, a couple of weeks on the job. And I remember a couple of people at, at Medtronic would come to me. So Art, what do you think about this? Didn't matter what it was. And I'd say, you know, you are actually closer to that. I guess I'd be curious as to what you think about it. Or they'd ask me, well, do you think I should do this? And I'd say, well, what are your options? And they'd list out the options. Which one do you like the best? <laughs> and, and they said, and they, eventually this, the frustration, or at first the frustration was at, at, at an all-time high. But, you know, and I think people were wondering, well, does he know anything? <laughs> but but part of the exercise here was to one, again, like I say, foster critical thinking as a leader, establish a communication cadence where I'm not only listening, but I'm also trying to gin up these ideas. And so, and then I want to drive empowerment in the organization. So part of the exercise is, is you coming up with these ideas rather than me. And then I'm going to hold you accountable to the outcome because we all are accountable to what it is we do. But the beauty of it is just is once individual delivers on what they've said they were going to do, the recognition is truly genuine because not only did they think about it, they accomplished it and they've been recognized and the wheels of the bus go round and round. And so part of this exercise, again, from a leadership perspective, begins with this concept of communication, but the authenticity factor of, you know, being, being a trusted leader is paramount. Yeah. A lot of stuff there to unpack. Well, 
it's funny because, you know, it's not like people haven't heard this before. You know, we get it in the business media, we get it in the books, we get it at the conferences. And yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, like, as you're sitting there talking, I'm thinking about my team, like, I basically am like, super lazy on this podcast, like, I don't do anything. I, I like pick yes once in a while. And then I show up like my team does everything. They book it, they reorganize it, they edit it, they post it to social, they make sure the guests got what they have. They like, I really am like a pretty like pampered. I'm a pan, I'm a pampered podcaster. Okay. Right. And, and I, I definitely bring up when things go wrong and what's my recognition been like, you know, like they make my life really easy. And it just made me think like, uh, I, I don't do enough. And it's funny, they're going to listen to this now because they edit most of the show, but but it makes me think like, yeah, what's my ratio of recognition? And, but I like, I don't know. This is one of my favorite things about podcasting though, is instead of words on a page, like I get to hear your feeling when you say that and you slow down and say real genuine recognition. Right. And that like, that got to me and I was like, dang it. I don't yeah. have a high enough ratio on that. Yeah. Not that, not that soft little golf clap you hear, but that resounding support for the individual that's really, really espousing the mission and the vision of the organization. And with the examples that go along with it, it there's, it's, there's no feeling like it. And the degree to which you can take and imbue the organization with it and get a bunch of these individuals that are charging toward that common goal, man, some great stuff happens. So the, yeah. the key here is, uh, you know, Justin, I think that the, the one thing I want to make sure that we put a, a, a stamp on is the fact that each one of these elements can be measured. And so as we think about, you know, building this crescendo of all these things kind of happening, you know, I think about the Bolero and that, you know, how, how that performance is like 18 different you know, iterations and how do we ultimately get to that crescendo. The, the key here is, is that by measuring each one, we can quickly as a leader figure out where we fall a little bit short, you know, are we, or do we, are we not developing our people in a way that they feel like they can contribute at the highest level? That is a, you know, demoralizer. Do we have a communication issue? Is it only one direction? You know, we have to, it's, it's critical to have bi-directional communication. So by being able to measure each one of these things, we can quickly ascertain what our orgometric score is, which defines the level of alignment within the organization. And then, uh, and what we know from all the data work that we do is that uh, the more aligned it is, the better it performs. And then we can take that, these pieces and tie them to things that matter. So in other words, the higher the accountability score, it seems to drive profitability or the higher the empowerment score, we see significant decreases in, in you name it, voluntary turnover. You know, the degree to which we see higher levels of teamwork, we oftentimes see uh, a drop in harassment cases. And, you know, anyway, it's just interesting yeah. data points that we're able to pull from this. So can we go, can we go super granular for a second for people listening? What's it, what's a, somebody who feels like, Oh, I don't think we're measuring that. What, what's a starter version of measuring one of those things? What, what does that tactically look like? So we have we've developed a tool called Orgometrics, right? And this tool specifically measures organizational alignment. And in 21 questions, in essence, less than 10 minutes, everybody can participate. We can quickly figure out by division, department, gender, age, race, whatever, where the areas of challenge are. So are we, of the nine pillars that we measure, which one are we most efficient? And how does that, from a normative data standpoint, compare with other organizations so that we can start to figure out, you know, where it is that we want to focus our time and attention. It's a great retention tool. It's a great attraction tool for employees. But at the same time, by being able to measure versus other organizations, we can create an ecosystem of best practices so we can get better at these things faster. And so the, the thumbnail sketch on this thing is, is, is being able to take, deploy an instrument to the, to the broader organization, get specific information around where the areas of occlusion are, begin the work of, of solving some of those. And that's where these consultants that we come across that are phenomenal in certain areas. And, you know, we can kind of tap them on the shoulder to address some of these things. But at the end of the day, as we become a more aligned organization, which we go back and remeasure, we can figure out, all right, where do we make moves? And then what correlated with that? So the move made in communication improved and so did profitability go up. Now we use advanced analytics to see the degree to which those things correlate. And ultimately we can say, well, if you do more of this, it's going to lead to more of that. Yeah. And so I'm just on the orgometrics.net website right now. 
is this, do, do people pay, like, is it a license per employee or how does that, pack, how's that packaged? So it's, it's large, the pricing is largely dependent upon, you know, one number of employees that would be involved, but also by the number of locations, how many decks need to be created. So if you think about an organization that has a thousand different locations, then that's going to be more than one that has three or four. And so yeah, it's, it's kind of a, an algorithm of, of those two things, number of employees and number of, of locations where a deck needs to be created. Yeah. So the book, tell me about, tell me about the reception to the book, how, how it's, you know, I know it's new. So far, but... it's been an Amazon bestseller. So we were, <laughs> we were excited about that, Jess. I mean, you know, I, you know, when you write a book like this, it's something that was extremely helpful for me as, as a leader, as a person of color that led some very large organizations that needed to make an impact quickly because, you know, Hey, let's face it, you know, uh, people are wondering, is this person going to make it and how effective are they going to be? And if they're not, we need to make a, a decision to uh, to move them out fast. So so I need to hit the ground running. And so to me, getting my organization aligned around mission, vision, values was was critical. And, and by the way, if you went against me, you're going against our mission. So you had we had to you know get real alignment in the organization. So I wanted a way to measure it. And so I grabbed a handful of PhDs and said, hey, look, I got to have the right questions to specifically get at the level of alignment. And so by creating that and, and then having the success of Medtronic and just cut to the chase, we were able to drive top line revenue 13% year over year in a flat market. And as a market leader, that is extremely difficult to do. You know, you're sitting on 55% market share, not the easiest thing. You've got to go take market share to be able to accomplish that. So we drove two cents per share to the bottom line of a $50 billion market cap. And so that it's significant, right? So I, at that point, I knew I had something and it became, all right, how do you go and commercialize this? Well, you start a company and, and get the right people to go out and, and get in front of the right folks and, and, and start bringing in customers. You start collecting data and piecing it all together. Then after seven years of that, hey, I got to share this. And so it was too good not to share too many elements that make sense in terms of trying to drive real performance. And then the fact that you can measure something that's historically been kind of these soft sort of skills is 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 paramount. So we're we're again as a team excited about that and the opportunity to share it. And I've spoken to a lot of different organizations about it. And you know, the degree to which we can help, we're we're excited to to go about that work. Well, I'm gonna try and restrain myself to to just two or three more questions. Okay. So, cause I got a lot of questions. The first one is thinking about a book. So any CEOs that are listening today, you know, writing a book is nobody describes it as easy. I've ever talked to. Okay. When you think about the price, the time to get a book written, if, if you were encouraging any other CEOs of, of, is it worth it? What, what would you say? Well, make sure it's a passion of yours because otherwise you, you can't get it done. It's a painful thing to, you know, to do in the midst of running a company and in, in the midst of all aspects of life. And so make sure that it's it's truly a passion of yours. Secondly, surround yourself with people that will tell you the truth. <laughs> so as you begin the stories and and, and create things that you think anecdotally will will draw people in. You, you want to know whether or not they actually will, and and you got to have people that'll that'll tell you the truth. So I, I I was diligent about that actually, and so and then the only other thing is 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 make sure that that you don't try to do it all at once. You know, do it in chunks. You know, you gotta you gotta kind of work it. I've written a number of articles, so grabbing these articles and kind of pulling them together and. And then putting some stories around the articles and experiences and whatnot became more of the exercise, you know, that would be on planes. I, I relegated that time on planes to, to or dedicated that time to, to do this work, a lot of this work. Yeah, you know, I just this morning, I was, I was working on one of the books I'm writing right now, which is all of the like, you know, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 and special ops guys we've had on the show. Took, we took all those, my team transcribed up all those interviews and we're going to put out a leadership book just based on those kind of a thing. And, and it's not quick. Right. And so, but I think like, okay, I have a whole bunch of reasons that I think it's worth it for a business to help their, you know, top leadership become higher profile experts in the industry of how that attracts business and stuff. But for you, the, the cost benefit analysis, why, why did that work out? Like, what do you think, why did it work out that it was worth the time and money for you? Uh, what, so what are you hoping for I, out of a book? I didn't, honestly, I didn't look at it from a cost benefit. I, I, this is, it was more cathartic for me. It was an opportunity to get those thoughts and ideas out there and share them. I, I think there are many people that are, that are in the same place that I was in, which is, 
you know, I, I, I want to get this thing going as quickly as possible. I want to have a create a culture that sustains uh, this level of performance. And the only way that you're going to do that is, is, is make sure that you've got the right metrics of measurement, that you can quickly tell where you need to focus your time and attention, and then be able to measure the impact of the work that you've done. And so by creating that orgometrics tool, and then being able to take and share that in a prescriptive way with leaders, I, I, to, for me, it's something I, I just felt compelled to do. And so it, that was more the driver than thinking, oh, I'm going to make money. And yeah, I, and I, I say that with, with, with all honesty and confidence that it, it was more cathartic than anything. Yeah. Well, what a great kind of alignment tool, even within your own organization and across your clients to be able to have this, you know, this, I don't know, nutrient dense package to be able to like for people to be able to refer back to the book, you know? Right. No, that, that, that is so true. And, and for, to your point, like you said, CEOs and leaders of organizations, the ability to take and, and, and get everybody in an organization, like I say, to drop the oars in the water at the same time, boy, what you end up finding is that it, it's a lot easier. It's a lot faster and smoother. The outcome's a lot better. And, and then you get a chance to catch your breath and, and, and rejoice in, in the, uh, in the accomplishments. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it as fully here of this, like, you know, the CEO writing a book can actually be an alignment team for uh, alignment tool for their own team. Right. Every time you onboard somebody new, you know, like there's less assumptions because it's literally in black, it's literally in black and white. There's less guessing, right? Right. About what it means to be part of this team, you know? Right. Well, and you have less turnover. I mean, you know, we start talking about onboarding. If the, the more people that espouse mission vision that you've set forth coming in, then uh, they're going to hit the ground running much faster. They're going to contribute at a much higher level. They're going to be better team members and they're less apt to go yeah. looking for something else to do. That's funny. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that angle of like, it could be like both a recruiting tool and a screening tool, like yeah, right. self-selection, right? right. Hey, and, this and is what you would be signing up for if you came over here. <laughs> and retention. Oh, good point. Yeah. Okay. Last, last or second to last question here. Thinking, you know, I got my first sales job 25 years ago as a 15 year old selling, selling corn on the streets of Edmonton, Alberta. Okay. They'd cut it six hours away in, in uh, Tabor, drive it up in the middle of the night. And I sat on a street corner sell, selling corn in the parking lot. And I feel like I've been a sales guy ever since. Even CEO of private equity funds, just top sales guy, right? And so I'm interested in your, you know, substantial sales success leading you to leadership and just any advice you have of how things change when you're managing 2000 people, just yeah. any advice for folks who haven't had an organization of that scale, but would like to. Number one, sell the vision as a leader, sell the vision. And that that's, that's the first step toward getting everybody on the same page. It's the first step toward establishing a common goal. You know, we talk about mission, but the vision is the is what the world will look like if we accomplish the mission. So by by sewing that into the fabric of the organization and getting people bought into it is going to be the the cornerstone of, of of success for that leader. But yeah, you've definitely got to sell the vision. Probably covers a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, Jess. I mean. You know, you, you've got to you've got to have the perfect storyline. You've got to have the uh, right sort of intonations and inflections in your voice to convey the passion associated with it. There is a lot of requirements around doing that in an effective way, and uh, some are really good at it, and, and some need to practice a little bit. But at the end of the day, those that are are good at that and 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 can then take and, and tie specific objectives to that and hold the folks accountable to those objectives, but yet empowering them to be uh, creative in what it is that they do, give them the tools to be effective. And I mean, there's just all these elements that we keep, we always talk about, but you've got to one, measure them and see where you are and then go fix them as you need to. But and get help and raise your hand when when you need it and, and get on with it. So just so you know, I'm totally going to plagiarize you from now on. I'm going <laughs> to tell people, there's some folks who are good at it and there's some folks that could use some practice. <laughs> it's very diplomatic. I like it. Um, use it. Use it liberally. Don't give me credit for it. It's all yours. <laughs> okay. Last, this has been my favorite question lately is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Boy, you know, I got, there's, there's a couple that come to mind, you know, when, when, when times are bad and, and this is, this came directly from one of my mentors when times are bad, which inevitably uh, it will happen. I can recall him saying to me, you know, Art, if this is the worst thing that happens to you, you are going to have a wonderful life. 
And when you take and put things into perspective in that way, you, you get over yourself <laughs> and you can start to move on and zoom up and see what what the broader impact of this really is and, and can get on with the things that, that really matter. So that, that's that, your dad. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, that, that was just uh, to me, it's been kind of that, that guiding light. I love it. Did you, you said you had two? Yeah. The other one is, is I kind of a, a, you know, an offshoot of that, but you know, you've got to, you've got to surround yourself with, with people that, that know more and, and will tell you the truth. And early on in my career, I established a, a personal advisory board and they were very diverse from a, a Catholic nun to a homeless person, to a law enforcement individual, to, you know, a corporate executive. And the idea there was to just help round out my thinking and cause me to contemplate things I might not otherwise. And so I found that to be most helpful. And the fact that they would tell me the truth was even a bigger bonus. So yeah, surround yourself with those that can expand your thinking and That'll tell you the truth. Okay. I got to ask about this one. The homeless person, how do you repeatedly get in contact with them? How did that uh, work? Well, it wasn't, I knew where to look and, you know, I, I provided lunch for everybody and it, we just do it all over lunch. And, you know, I, it just, I, I knew it. I couldn't always get him, but about, I'd say about half the time he was able to participate. And, and okay. This is just too interesting. how did you, how did you pick that guy? Well, I, you know, he's always smiling and, and like selling flowers on the street and stuff and just always in a good mood. And, you know, every time you drove past him, it, it was like this uplifting experience. So I kind of, you know, took an interest in him and, you know, it, over the years, he ended up getting an apartment and getting a job and, you know, get medication and, you know, just life. Life improved substantially for me. And then he moved and I, I lost contact with him. I love it. You know, I don't usually do this, but I may, I'm going to share one of mine if that's okay. You're talking about your dad just makes me think about my grandpa so much. For my grandpa, it wasn't actually something he said. It was something I observed him do, which was he was willing to bite his tongue. Yeah. Like I had, I had these other cousins a couple of years older than me that were getting in a bunch of trouble. And he's like super churchy guy, pillar of the community. And I know for a fact, he had a lot of opinions about what they should and shouldn't be doing. And I just watched him bite his tongue and just love them. And just said like that, you know, realize like, that's kind of like, let the parents be the parents. Right. And there's a couple of them that would not come to any family function. They would not like, they just would checked out. Right. And, but if my grandpa was going to be around, they'd, they'd come, you know, and just the, the restraint when he was, you know, he was a hard charger. He was a leader. He was, he was, he was a big deal. And his willingness to bite his tongue was the uh, best piece of advice I ever watched. Maybe. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, thanks for doing the interview. This is great. Congratulations on the book and all the success. And I don't know, you should come back on next year and give us an update. Love to, Jess. I, you do a wonderful job of, of, of pulling out the, the relevant topics and, and also adding a degree of levity when appropriate. So it, I, I appreciate the work that you do and giving me the opportunity to come tell our story. You bet. Bye, everyone.